You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. The first reading this morning comes from Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31. You can find it on page two of the Black Pew Bible in front of you. And just as a reminder, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take one of these home as a gift to you from Redeemer. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of the Lord. The gospel reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. It's on page 780 of your Bible. Would you please stand for the reading of the gospel? The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. 
So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master said to him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to, the, to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. And that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Well, once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. Good to see you. Glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, today is the sixth Sunday in the season of Epiphany. Having anticipated the coming of Christ in Advent and having celebrated his arrival in Christmas, we rejoice to behold the light of the world during the season of Epiphany. And in this season, to kick off the new year, we have undertaken a sermon series that is seeking to clarify and focus our reason for existing as a parish, Redeemer's Why. And we have said thus far that Redeemer exists to practice gospel formation for missional presence. And this is important for us to talk about because the value add of a parish like Redeemer may not be self-evident to our neighbors and to our city and maybe even to some of our members. That might be the understatement of the year, right? Why do we exist? What's the local church for anyway? And what we want each other to know is that we so desire the good news of the renewal of all things in Jesus to so deeply mold and shape our inner and outer lives that we become the kind of people who can participate in the mission of God here in our place and in our time. And this kind of formation, this kind of change happens as we engage the seven practices of the ancient church, practices of story and identity and belonging and virtue and context, vocation and imagination, seven genres or kinds of practices that address the seven essential questions that every human being is already in the process of answering. Questions like, what story am I in? Who am I? With whom do I belong? How do I change? Where do I make my life? What is my purpose? How do I love? And we've tackled five of these practices thus far. And if you missed any of them, you're welcome to go online, either on our website or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to content, and listen in and catch up so that we can stay on the same page together as a church. Today, we're going to address the question, what is my purpose? And we're going to go about it with the answer and the practice, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So what is the purpose of your life anyway? It's a nice lighthearted question to get us started this morning. What's your purpose? It's not a new question. It's not an angsty millennial question. It's not even a desperate boomer question. This is an everybody thing, right? It's a timeless conundrum. To the best of our knowledge, the Greek philosopher Aristotle was the first to codify language around the question of the purpose of human life. He called it telos, from which we get our word teleology. When asked the very basic question, what is the point of human existence? Aristotle responded that everything must have a telos, a point, a purpose, a goal, 
a final cause, a final intention. Telos is what gets you out of bed in the morning. Telos is what motivates you to keep going when you're tired. Telos is what gives you a sense of satisfaction and meaning, even enjoyment when at the end of a long and difficult day, you know that what you did mattered. Your telos is your purpose. And human beings cannot live without purpose. I know that. I know you know that as well. The other day, I uh, was reading a somewhat dark and um, sort of tragically hilarious article. It was like an article written by the Cohen brothers um, about how many, listen, many members of the Taliban, now that they have control over the government of Afghanistan, are experiencing a crisis of purpose. Men who used to ride horses and carry assault rifles and strategize hostile takeovers of cities are now sitting in front of computers at desk jobs, answering emails and phone calls as they are now responsible for the infrastructure and governance of Afghanistan. And they hate it. (laughs) Now, I don't want to make too light of this. Like the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan has led to numerous atrocities. We all know that. Human rights violations. It's been a catastrophe. But even in the darkness, there have to be sometimes moments of grim humor where you just kind of have to find something to laugh about. And the plight of these men is so ironically funny. In their own words, in an interview, they are saying things like, quote, we spent a lifetime fighting an empire only to win and have to run a country. (laughs) In an interview, one of the former Muhaideen said, there is real little work, there's little real work for me to do now. In my office, we have really fast Wi-Fi, and I spend almost all my time on Twitter. (laughs) Now, nearly every single man who was interviewed said some version of, I miss the jihad. (laughs) Like, I miss the days of jihad. Now I just have a desk job at an office. Now, we could interpret this as what they really miss is the violence and the conquest. But if you allow your enemies a moment of humanity, what do they really miss? Well, they miss purpose, a reason for getting out of bed in the morning. We all need purpose. Whether you're a ninth grade student at Maggie Walker High School or the Taliban, you need purpose, right? And you've got to understand that no matter who you are, the story of the Bible dignifies that deep inner need for purpose. The story of the Bible begins with creation. God creates humanity and bestows upon every human being a telos, a purpose, a reason for existing. But through what the Bible calls the fall into sin, that purpose is distorted, twisted, bent. But in Jesus, who is the first of the new humanity, that purpose is refreshed and renewed. And the new creation promised at the end of the biblical story uh, is a a creation where the purpose is fully restored, fully renewed, And eternity, according to the story of the Bible, is not marked by nothingness or by sitting around or lounging around, uh, but by becoming uh, or becoming one with the universe, but rather it's an eternity of eternal purpose. You've got to understand this is part of the great hope of the Christian faith, that there is not only purpose in this life, but in the life to come as well. Now, for today, we are not going to be able to give a comprehensive teaching on the purpose of life according to Jesus or be able to explore all the ways that we manifest our purpose in the world. We, I would contend, quite literally, have the rest of our lives and indeed all of eternity to do just that. But what we will do today is we will give an introduction. That's the goal for today. You might say the telos of this sermon is to simply give an introduction, okay? And we're gonna do this through Genesis chapter two and Matthew 25, the two texts that were read this morning. Now, 
I know that some of you like to take notes and you like to have kind of some structure and some outlines, so here's your outline, okay? Part one, we're going to talk about how your purpose is your vocation. Your purpose is your vocation. Part two, we're going to talk about how your vocation is not your occupation. Part two, your vocation is not your occupation. And then part three, you practice your, voca- your, your purpose, you practice your purpose through your vocation in your occupation, okay? And at this point, we're all thoroughly confused. It's like, are you just mixing words up? Like, this is, I hope this is gonna make sense. So part one, your purpose is your vocation. Part two, your vocation is not your occupation. And part three, you practice your purpose through your vocation in your occupation, Let's begin with your vocation is your purpose. Vocation comes from this Latin word vocare. It means calling. And a calling requires both a caller and the called. God is the caller. We are the called in the biblical imagination. In Genesis chapter 2, we are introduced to this concept called the image of God. If you want to stick with that Latin theme, we could call it the imago Dei. It's a positional role. It's the role of a vice regent someone who is subjected to God with dominion over the world, ruling on behalf of God underneath God and representing God to the world, representing the world back up to God. You might, if you want to use really kind of like, kind of trashy language, you could call it middle management. That's the role of the image of God. Now, Genesis chapter two contains what we might call the cultural mandate. It's a garden, not a wilderness. Garden means intentional cultivation. The implications of the Imago Dei are that the role of human beings is to cultivate the material world, to bring about the flourishing of the earth. My friend Steve Garber puts it this way, the word vocation is a rich one, having to address the wholeness of life, the range of relationships and responsibilities, work, yes, but also families, neighbors, citizenship, both locally and globally, all of this and more is seen as vocation. You might say that vocation is framed by the first and second greatest commandments, commandments to love God and to love neighbor. Vocation has a purpose towards God, relating to God as a servant, a steward, you might say a member of God's staff. Purpose also is directed towards others and the common good, relating to others and relating to the world. It's an author named Gustav Weingren who puts that concept this way. He writes, with persons as his hands, God gives his gifts through the earthly vocations, food through farmers, fishermen and hunters, external peace through princes, judges and orderly powers, knowledge and education through teachers and parents and so on. His point, of course, is that you cannot separate vocation from the common good. Individual vocation from justice and mercy for the community. It's not that some work is for the good of others and other work is for profit. That distinction does not exist in a biblical understanding of vocation. There is no profit versus non-profit divide in the kingdom of God. Rather, our imaginations for work have to expand to the place where we go about all of our work as a way that is, in a way that is not only profitable, but also nurturing for our city and for our world. The uh, reformer John Calvin puts that concept this way. He writes, all the blessings we enjoy 
are divine deposits committed to our trust on one condition, that they be dispensed for the benefit of our neighbors. So what we're trying to imagine here is work where we need each other to succeed for our collective good. So you imagine right now other people who are at work, whether it's a fellow student or the manager of like the rival law firm across the street or a teacher of another school or maybe of a different um, kind of class down the hall. And we tend to have this kind of competitive relationship with our peer group when it comes to the work that we do. But the imagination here is not competitive. It's collaborative. It's I need you to do well and you need me to do well for our collective good. When the farmer flourishes, the city nearby flourishes. It's the contractor who builds the solid house so the family can flourish. It's the doctor who sets the broken arm so the little girl can flourish. It's the teacher who educates the children so they can grow up to flourish. It's the nurse who cares and comforts the suffering so they can be healed and flourish. It's the truck driver with the untarnished safety record so everybody else on the road can get where they're going. It's the investment banker who honestly and transparently serves the client so the client's whole household can flourish. It's the mother who nourishes her children so they can grow up with healthy bodies. The question every Christian should be asking is how do other people benefit from my work? Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10 says, when the righteous prosper, the city will rejoice. And I love that it puts it that way instead of the way our brains most naturally reword it, which is when the righteous prosper, other people ought to rejoice, which is not what it says. It's a logical truism, not a command. It's not commanding you to rejoice. It's just defining reality. When those who are righteous, which in the biblical imagination is those who are both loving God and loving neighbor, when those kind of people are thriving, guess what? Everybody thrives. Everybody flourishes. Another question every Christian could ask would be, how does the community benefit from my work? So let's summarize here. Your purpose, your reason for existing is your vocation. Christian vocation is your calling from God to bear his image to the world and to bear the world back to him, to serve as his vice regent, his steward, his staff person, wielding a portion of his delegated authority over a portion of his domain. Your vocational calling is to do this in such a way that accurately represents God to that domain, which is to say, accurately represents and demonstrates the love and wisdom of God to your sphere of influence of the world, however big or small that might be. This is, I hope you can uh, track with this, a comprehensive understanding of vocation. You are therefore always practicing your vocation. If you want to put it in a double negative, you are never not in your vocation. (laughs) You're never off the clock. All of your work, all of your rest, everything It's a part of your vocation from brewing coffee to cooking breakfast to packing lunches to driving buses to answering emails to attending to the needs of clients to studying and learning and taking tests to diversifying portfolios to grading papers to washing dishes. All work, all things you do with your mind and your body are expressions of your vocation, your calling and your purpose. Now this is important because even as we say something as grand and glorious and comprehensive as that, our objections begin to pop up like little kernels of popcorn in the pan, right? But what about this? Hang on, what about that? Your occupation 
is not your purpose. Your vocation is not your occupation. My friend Steve Garber goes on to say, vocation is never the same word as occupation, just as calling is not the same word as career. You see, Scripture not only tells the story of the glory of vocation, but also the corruption of our occupations. We experience this in the futility of our work. Genesis 2, glorious vocation. Genesis 3, corrupted occupation. Work becomes infested with, in the language of Genesis 3, thorns and thistles, which is to say that all of our work has a kind of futility and frustration to it. No matter what job or kind of work you go about doing, there's like this Sisyphus quality to it where you're rolling a boulder up a hill only to have it roll back down. And this happens not only um, in ways that our, that our jobs or our work environments or our bosses, the people over us may be like mean and exploitative and those things, but, but also none of your work like stays done, right? There's an impermanence to the way uh, we go about our work. Uh, and I would say few people know this more acutely than stay-at-home parents with young kids in the house. Because no matter what you do, like no matter how clean your house gets, no matter like how you like carefully you steward your home, the work never stays done, does it? See? Yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> our family experienced this acutely the other day when um, we're, we're trying to teach our kids how to do chores around the house. And our, my youngest son, John, who's four years old, he'll be five in a couple weeks, um, He was given a chore, a job, and it was to clean a countertop. We gave him a spray bottle and a rag and a stool to stand on so he could reach the counter. And he got on up and he sprayed and he scrubbed clean counter. So proud of himself. Standing up straight, marching around the house. Not 20 minutes later, some of the other kids decided they wanted to do some, they wanted to bake cookies. So they got out the mixer and the flour and all the kind of stuff, put it on that counter. And he circles back to the kitchen 20 minutes later and he sees the mess on the counter and in his own little four-year-old language, he goes, ah, I just cleaned this. (laughs) And Rachel, who's standing right next to him, is like, "Mm mm-hmm, that's how it goes, right? (laughs) Welcome to my world. (laughs) It's the futility of work. Things don't stay done. But then there's also the emptiness of work. What's the first question that you and I tend to ask each other? I mean, later in this service, there's going to be the passing of the peace where we all get up and we talk to each other and we say, peace be with you. But then we also say, what's your name? Here's my name. And then usually the follow-up question is, what do you do, right? Why do we ask that as a way to get to know each other? It's because we all recognize, hopefully in a charitable way, that we all tend to merge our work and our identity, there is the real, the real temptation to do that. And when we do that, we actually discover emptiness and not fullness. Our work and our identity tend to get mixed up. We get our calling and we get the context of where we are sent confused. The one who calls you to the work is not the same thing as the work and the context that awaits you. And we have to recognize this. There are problems with our work. Not just that there are like genuinely bad jobs out there. Can we just, let's, let's dispense with kind of the way we tend to overgeneralize about work. Not all work is equally good. Some work is actually better than others. There are really good jobs out there. There are also really bad jobs out there, right? It's not all the same. But no matter what kind of work you end up in, all work is flawed. There is no perfect job. And we tend to look for jobs that are outer expressions of what we perceive to be our inner identity. Like, authenticity becomes core to my vocational identity. My work must equal my passion in some way. 
the author of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament goes after that idea and blows it up. Um, I recently learned this, but the book of Ecclesiastes, did you know this, actually has more to say about work than any other book of the Bible, as far as like how many verses in the book are actually devoted to the subject of work. And chapter two, verse 17 is a good example of this. The author of Ecclesiastes writes, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity, a striving after the wind. Now you must understand when the author of Ecclesiastes writes all that is done under the sun, he's talking about work. He's talking about labor. He's talking about all the stuff that you end up doing. And then when he says it's vanity, he's saying it's, it's purposelessness. It's like this, there's no telos to it. There's no final end. It's not worth anything. And then he ends the phrase by saying a striving after the wind. And that word wind in Hebrew is this word ruach. It's the same word used to describe the Holy Spirit. And so actually, I think a, a more timely and accurate translation of this verse might go something like, I hated life because all the work that I do is purposeless. It's just chasing God. Striving after the wind, chasing the spirit, chasing God, trying to find God in our work and coming up empty, hoping that somewhere in our work we will find a calling and yet not hearing anything. There's futility in our work. There's emptiness in our work. Then there's also fearfulness in our work. Did you hear the story of the parable of the talents? What's happening in that story? You've got a master. He delegates some responsibility, some authority to three different servants, goes away on a trip, comes back. Two of them have done really well. One of them, not so much. What did that third servant do? He buried the resources in the ground. And when the master gets back, he digs it up, hands it to the master and says, here, take what is yours. And now why does he do that? He says, quote, I knew you to be a hard man. Meaning there's like, I'm a little afraid of you. Now, the way that story so often gets interpreted is that the first two servants knew how to take good risks. Like every wealth manager loves this story. They're like, see, no risk it, no biscuit. Like you gotta, you know, you got, is that the, is that the meaning of the story? It is not. <laughs> no, what's the problem here? The problem is the third servant is afraid of the master. There is a breakdown in the relationship between the caller and the called. The servant fears the master and so fears the calling. And so I ask you, where is fear in your work? How has fear wiggled and wormed its way into the work that you do? If you asked yourself a question like, if I actually sought to follow God in my work, how would it go? And if you tend to think it probably wouldn't go so well, then maybe that's where fear has wormed its way in. There's futility in our work. There's emptiness in our work. There's fearfulness in our work. Then finally, there's isolation in our work. Not only do we have the problem of literally working in isolation, like Amazon warehouses, home offices, endless Zoom calls, but also the more we tend to succeed in our work, the less we depend on each other and on our neighbors. It's like the more isolated I become, the more successful I am. Isolation becomes this perverse reward for successful work. Robert uh, Bela has written about this in his book called Habits of the Heart. Or he writes, we are moving to an ever greater validation of the sacredness of the individual person, but our capacity to imagine a social fabric that would hold individuals together is vanishing. The sacredness of the individual is not balanced by any sense of the whole. 
or concern for the common good. We see this in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus tells the story of a farmer who is wildly successful. He has a bumper crop and he is trying to figure out what to do with all of this newly accrued wealth. What he does is he says, I'm going to tear down my old barns. I'm going to build bigger barns to store all of this grain that I have harvested this year. And the story ends, as some of you will know, with him actually dying before he can like enjoy any of that stuff. And the point of that story is often misunderstood. The point is not hurry up and enjoy it before you die. The point is the kind of greed of this farmer that sought to tear down his barns, build bigger ones, and just store more, accrue more wealth, fails to recognize that his prosperity is for the common good, that that farmer had neighbors, and that he was to share from the overflow, from his abundance, with those around him, and he fails to do so. That's the problem in the story. Let's summarize here. There is a terrible danger in equating your vocation, your calling from God, with your occupation, your job, or your career. There's a terrible danger there. Why? Because the job, the occupation itself is broken. We experience futility in our work. We tend to overly identify, find our identity in our work, and it, and it, it doesn't pan out for us. We tend to work from a place of fear, which steals our joy. We tend to experience isolation in our work, increasingly so the more successful we are. And this leaves us adrift. This is why identifying your purpose and having a deep, rooted, confident sense of purpose eludes so many of us. We have this nagging sense that the work we do is supposed to matter, that somehow our purpose is bound up in what we do. And listen, this is true no matter who you are, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe the gospel or not, all of us have this sense that the stuff we do with our lives is somehow connected to our purpose. And yet when we actually look at what we do, it gets a little depressing because we go, if that's my purpose, then what is my life, right? And so this is why, uh, this is my theory on why you get so many new businesses and startups now that are seeking to be what we might call like the virtuous company, right? It's the company that not only turns a profit, but also like sort of does something that everybody thinks is admirable or valuable. It's an attempt to say, look, we don't only make shoes, we also do a bunch of like good stuff in the third world, right? And that way we're finding some, like, I need to make this job work for my purpose. So if that's where we are, how can our work be repaired? How could our work be renewed? How could our purpose be renewed? In order to understand this, you know what you have to do? You have to not just see a God who assigns work or who calls people to work, but a God who works himself not only in the work of creation and the work of God that sustains our world, but also in Jesus, the worker, Jesus, the laborer. And in Jesus, the laborer, you catch a vision for the shape of our vocation and our occupation. Dorothy Sayers puts it this way. The first Adam was cursed with labor and suffering and the redemption of labor and suffering comes from the second Adam, the carpenter who was nailed to the cross. If you think about it, Jesus is a kind of inverse of the parable of the talents. What did the third servant do? He buried his talent in the ground and it emerged exactly as it went in, having produced nothing. Dead in, dead out. Jesus also went into the ground. He died and was buried and his life seemed to be like that of the third servant. His life appeared to be like that single talent buried in the dirt. 
But Jesus emerged from the grave, resurrected, transformed, and his resurrection has produced more fruit than any other event in human history. Look, again, whether you believe the gospel or not, whether you're a Christian or not, you've got to acknowledge that no other claim in human history can have, has had the kind of outsized impact on the world as the claim of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus is the only one who perfectly labored on behalf of God for the common good. Jesus perfectly represents God to the world. If you want to know what God is like, he's like Jesus. Jesus represents God to us. Jesus also perfectly represents the world back to God. What is humanity like to God? How does God see you? If you have come to Jesus through faith and been united to him in baptism, then when God sees you, what he's seeing is Christ. We become like Jesus. Jesus represents us back to God. And so through Jesus, your vocation, bestowed by God and broken by sin, is reclaimed and refreshed and renewed. And as you take up this renewed vocation, you are invited to practice it. Just practice it all the days of your life. And the context in which you practice your renewed vocation is guess where? In your occupations. The stuff, the material, the calendar, the to-do list. Your vocation is your purpose. Your occupation is not your vocation though, but you can practice your purpose through your vocation in your occupations. Your calling becomes bound up in the work of Jesus on your behalf. Your occupation, your sending, is bound up in the work that you do on behalf of your neighbor. Now listen, this redeems the pain and the brokenness of our work. Just think right now, like hold in your mind the kind of work that you tend to do. Whether it's a stay-at-home parent or a job that takes you to an office or a job that takes you out to do manual labor with your hands or the work of a student Like just hold your kind of work in your mind for a moment and think about the pain of that work, the futility of that work, the emptiness in that work, the fearfulness in that work, the isolation of that work. And now how does the gospel of Jesus begin to redeem all of those, all of those, all of that pain in your work to the futility of your work, that, that, that Sisyphus effect where you feel like you're rolling a boulder up a hill and it just rolls back down. Nothing you do stays done and your work is so deeply flawed. What does the gospel do? Well, it shows you that even in work that feels pointless, even in work that never stays done, that work is like a seed that goes into the ground and dies. And that somehow you trust through faith that God is going to bring good fruit out of it. You even feel that sometimes you yourself are that seed that goes into the ground and dies. And yet, just as Jesus's death became resurrection, glory, and fruitfulness, so your own futility becomes so as well. What about emptiness? This chasing after the wind, trying to find God in your work and yet seeming like, seemingly coming up empty. The gospel comes to you and says, Jesus is already there. He's in your work. In just a few moments, once the sermon is done and once I stop talking, uh, we are gonna sing your labor is not in vain. And the promise in that song to us is God saying to you, I am with you. <laughs> You do not have to chase after the wind in your work. Jesus is already there. What about fearfulness? Well, instead of a master to whom you may fear and and sort of respond to out of that fearfulness, what you have in Jesus is a master who loves you. And you can relate to your master 
in a relationship that is defined by love and that all of your serving and laboring, therefore, is done from a place of love, not fear. What about isolation? What you find is that as you engage your work in the gospel and as the gospel increasingly shapes your work, then you find that success in your work leads you to greater dependence on each other, not less. Your work binds you, weaves you more tightly into the fabric of the church, not leading to further estrangement and isolation. That what success means is actually greater dependence on one another year over year. Now, listen if you can. At the end of the service, we are going to pray in the liturgy this phrase in the prayer of gratitude, quote, send us out to do the work you have given us to do. And what I hope that you see and hear in that, even as you hear other people speak it, and even as the words come out of your mouth, is that you are being sent to do work that is primarily, primarily where? Here? No. Out. Send us out to do the work. One of the greatest mistakes that most Christians tend to make is to understand our work primarily in terms of church programs. That the way you serve God will be the way you participate in Redeemer's programs. Let us not make that mistake. At most, you and I will spend maybe 5% of our waking hours in Redeemer programs. And that's only if we like attend everything every week, right? Which no one actually does. And I don't mean that as a passive aggressive barb, okay? Like, no, but what does that leave? That leaves, you know, at least 95%, maybe more, of our living to be done in the world. That is where we are sent. And so the church becomes an organism that equips all of us to go out into the world to do our work. Look, it's not, it's not faith or work. It's not even faith and work. It's just faithful work. That's what we're sent to. Martin Luther King Jr. puts it this way. If, your lot, if it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, Sweep streets like Michelangelo carved marble. Sweep streets as Shakespeare wrote pictures. Sweep streets so well that all the host of heaven will say, here lives a street sweeper who did his job well. The point is, all of us tomorrow morning, maybe even this afternoon, are going to go to work. And the temptation will be to either think that the actual work you're doing is your calling, which is not true, or to think that the actual work you're doing has nothing to do with your calling, which is not true either. Rather, what you must see is that your work is the context. It is the place in which you practice your vocational purpose. It's where you embody your sainthood. It's where you begin to live out what it means to follow the way of Jesus. And you can do that in very ordinary, mundane ways. You could also do it in extraordinarily creative ways, but either way, That's the context. That's the place where you do the work. Now, we have said that we are a church that exists to practice gospel formation for missional presence. Um, James Davidson Hunter has described what that means, what it means to be missionally present in our work, in our vocations, even in perhaps our occupations. And he describes it this way. Faithful presence in the world means that Christians are fully present and committed in their spheres of influence, whatever they may be, families, neighborhoods, voluntary activities, and places of work. So 
Friends, our vocations and our occupations, the good work that we are each called to do and sent to do, is one of the most important ways that we will be missionally present here in our place and in our time. And we'll do this as as individuals. We will also do it together as a church. Let's pray. God of heaven and earth, we pray for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Teach us to see our vocations and occupations as woven into your work in this world. For mothers at home who care for children, for those whose labor forms our common life in this city and the nation and the world, for those who serve the marketplace of ideas and commerce, for those whose creative gifts nourish us all, for those whose callings take them to the academy, for those who long for employment that satisfies their souls and that serves you. For each one we pray and we ask for your great mercy. Give us eyes to see that our work is holy to you, O Lord, even as our worship this day is holy to you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.